You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. All right, our first speaker tonight we have we are so honored to have Joe Burns come and speak to us let's give it up to for Joe Joe now I didn't have a lot of time to sort of prepare I didn't know that I was actually going to be making these introductions um, but I can tell you that uh, Joe's first book um, uh, reviving the strike Joe was that your first okay um, so I got that right. Good. So this was about 10 years ago, and I was first, I wasn't even really active in my union at all. And um, Occupy Wall Street was going on. Do you all remember that? Some of you maybe weren't born then. Um, so I, that really captured my imagination in terms of people power and pushing back on the economic system. And I met some folks there, and that really sort of launched me in my journey to becoming active in my union. And the, I think the first labor union-related book that I read was Reviving the, the Strike by Joe. And I did it with a few other folks, and we had sort of a book study. And we met a couple times and talked about it. Great book. Um, he then wrote Strike Back, and his latest book is called Class Struggle Unionism, If You Have Not. Uh, picked up a copy. We do have copies of that, and I hope, you know, if you're not sold yet, then after you hear him speak, uh, you'll be sold on, on, on taking home one of those books. Uh, it's an amazing book. So Joe's a longtime labor organizer and author, currently represents flight attendants, uh, and I know he's got a lot of exciting things to share with us, so come on up, Joe. Uh, hey, everybody. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background, and then uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the history of public employee unionism, and in particular, the role of the strike in creating our unions, and the importance of the, the strike tactic and the sort of philosophy behind it. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the moment that we're in, and kind of some lessons that we can learn from history uh, to uh, strengthen our unions and to be, uh, thank you, uh, to be more uh, effective going forward. Let me make sure I don't spill this. Oh, I can put it down here. Um, all right, so um, just a little bit on my background. Um, in the 1990s, I was my local union president in Minnesota at a hospital, hospital worker. I was. Uh, on president of my local union. I was on the statewide executive board with ASME. I was a public employee. Um, and I did that for a while. And I did a lot of strike support and participated in supporting a lot of the bitter strikes during that period uh, where management was coming in and trying to bust our unions uh, in industry after industry and workers were fighting back. So I learned a lot of lessons from that. Um, but one of the things as a, as a public uh, employee um, I didn't even back then know about our history. 
Like, how did we come about as public, uh, as teachers' unions and as uh, uh, unions of other public workers? Uh, and uh, you know, so and anyway, so so I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I, you know, I went to law school and then subsequently been bargaining pretty much for the last 30 years. Um, been bargaining uh, full time uh, in the healthcare industry. Uh, in the last 20 years, I've been bargaining. Uh, I'm director of collective bargaining and now general counsel of the Association of Flight Attendants. Um, so we basically have been taking on every employer in the country uh, in airlines and, and doing a lot of tough bargaining. Uh, currently working with the American Airlines Flight Attendant, uh, where we just got a 99.47% strike vote. Uh, <laughs> my wife, Melissa, is a flight attendant and is uh, active in her union, too. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we're, uh, so I've kind of learned a lot over the years kind of about bargaining, but one of the things I started to do was in my spare time, uh, looking back to labor history to kind of, you know, not just because I like labor history, um, but to learn from the past in order to develop tactics to help us in the future, right? That's one of the reasons that we study history. And in my first book, Reviving the Strike, I looked around, and what I saw was that we had a labor movement back in the early 2000s, which had virtually abandoned the strike, which was odd, right? We were doing collective bargaining without what was called our most effective weapon. If you read labor uh, textbooks from the early 1960s, which I read a lot of them when I was researching, and they, they uniformly said that the, the strike was the essence of collective bargaining. It's how we get employers to agree to our demands, not necessarily that we have to strike, but they have to know that there's a consequence for not agreeing to our demands, right? So, so, but we had a drastic decline in strike activity from like over 500 major strikes a year in the private sector in the 1950s, millions of workers going on on strike, to only a handful of major strikes in the, in the early 2000s. So I wrote this book, Reviving the Strike, and I was basically arguing like, hey, if we want to revive the labor movement and we want a more effective labor movement, we have to look back and redevelop our most effective tool. And I think over the last uh, decade and certainly over the last few years, that's certainly happening, right? Everyone's been reading the news. You see the you know, hundreds of thousands of Teamsters at UPS with Sean O'Brien as the reform leader of the Teamsters. Um, basically standing up and uh, taking on UPS, the largest employer, uh, private sector employer uh, that's unionized, and basically taking them up to the brink of the strike and winning a record-setting contract. We've got the auto workers on strike right now, settling at Ford through the power of the strike, right? Winning a record contract. And hopefully, you know, GM or Stellantis, I guess you call it, and... Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be settling soon. Yeah, Sean Fain, uh, reform leader as well. So, so I think, uh, you know, the striking's, uh, you know, uh, kind of back on our agenda. Um, but when I wrote my, after I wrote that, you know, I started to look at public employees, because I used to be a public worker, right? And I also bargained with nurses in the public sector in Illinois. And... What I wanted to do was kind of look back at our history and how did we develop public employee unions and why are we here? And what can we do when we're under attack and how can we be more effective? And when I started looking at it, what I discovered 
was that strike, striking and the strike is really the reason <clears throat> that we developed our public employee unions in the first place. In 1958, there were only 15 strikes of public workers in the United States, all of the United States. And those were just short little strikes about pay disputes and not really protracted labor relations, uh, you know, fights. Um, back in the 1950s, public employees represented, teachers and so forth, represented a fraction of the labor movement. And they didn't really get a lot of respect. The New York Times said, why would you be a teacher when you can make more being a unionized car wash worker? That's how little esteem the workers had without the union. But every idea starts small. And starting in New York City, a handful of organizers got together. And back then, even the, even the teachers' unions and other public employee unions, they had it in their constitution that you couldn't strike. Because there was this idea that it was somehow illegitimate for public workers to strike. Now, that's ridiculous, right? Um, but that was certainly a prevalent idea. But they got together, and, the, and back then, the teachers' unions, it was called collective begging, not collective bargaining. Because what they would do is they'd show up to the school district, and they'd have their handful of teachers, and they'd plead with them. Can you guys hear me? Um, and they'd plead with them to recognize their union, and they'd routinely get ignored. But the New York teachers decided to do something about it, and they staged a one-day strike on election day in 1960. And they didn't even get all the teachers to go out. They got about 5,000 teachers out of 25,000 to walk. But guess what? The power of that strike and the political timing was such that they got recognition from their employer. They followed it up with another strike in 1962. And they won a contract. And they, didn't, and they got more teachers out the second time. And then they followed that up with further strike activity, um, winning their union, and more importantly, well, not more importantly for them, but more importantly for us as uh, looking at teacher unionism, they lighted a spark that spread all over the country. Chicago teachers showed up to the next school board meeting, and they were no longer begging, they were demanding. They went in and said, give us recognition or we're going to walk. And guess what? They won recognition because they had the power of the members behind them. And over the next uh, 20 years, 25 years, I think they struck 10 times. But in the process, you know, they raised wages by 1970. I think it was 90%. And they won things back then, the things that you guys are fighting for now with the bargaining for the public good. They won things like classroom size, and they had these broad social goals that they were fighting for because that's what public workers and teachers cared about, right? And the interesting thing was, when all striking was illegal, because I don't think I mentioned, that striking was illegal in every state in the country in 1960s. And in many states, it was a felony to strike, and it still is for federal workers. Yet, we don't think about it, 
But the public employee strike wave of the 1960s was one of the great examples of civil disobedience in our nation's history. Because millions and millions of public workers went out on strike. And it was, a, and it was an explosion from below. So following these teachers in New York and Chicago, teachers all over the country rebelled. And they went out on strike. And it was very heroic. Because when you read the histories, you know, they would be in a, in a you know, there's Evergreen Washington is one of the great ones, you know, the, one of the first strikes. And I think I got the one right. But uh, they, uh, but, but, you know, they, they faced injunctions. And they started threatening to send the teachers to jail. So they sent the first president to jail, and then the second one. And then they picked the, you know, this kind of this more elderly lady teacher, and they, they put her up. And the judge was going to jail her, but all the teachers showed up with a book and a toothbrush. And they said, if you're going to put her in jail, you put us all in jail. And guess what? You know what happened? The judge goes, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell the school board, we're going to put you in jail if you don't agree to a contract. And that's how they won their contract. But I think more importantly throughout the country, you know, we had teachers, you know, going on strike. And we, we by the mid-1970s, we go from almost no public employee unions to almost 40% uh, public employees are unionized. And again, it went in waves. You know, first we talk about the teachers, but then like sanitation workers, you've heard about, you know, Dr. King uh, and the, the Memphis uh, sanitation workers. But it happened all over the South. Um, sanitation workers going on strike and it merged together with the civil rights struggle and winning contracts in places like Atlanta, uh, San Antonio, many other, many other states uh, that weren't necessarily strongholds of unionism or bargaining. Um, but it, and it was all through that. But it also, what it did was, they not only won their contracts, but they were able to, through the power of their defiance of the system, they were able to change the laws. If you go around the country and you look state by state, how did they get collective bargaining in Ohio? It wasn't because the legislature woke up one day and thought it was a good idea. It was because there was a strike in Toledo of the firefighter and police went out. And then immediately following that, they passed a law. Hawaii, public workers, 10,000 public workers go out on strike, surround the state capitol, and guess what? Uh, the legislature is right then voting on whether or not to have public uh, employees allow them the right to strike. Well, they're already out striking. So what they decided to do was that they would legislate it. Because if public, and the, and the elite policymakers said this, since public employees are striking anyway, um, we need a method to the madness, right? That, that we need some sort of procedures in place. And that's how we get collective bargaining laws and you know the idea that you have to follow a set of mandatory mediation and so forth in various states, so probably here, I guess. Um, but but in, in some states, yeah. So, um, but you know, but but through that process, you know, we discover a few things. 
One is that an interesting thing because labor relations uh, professionals used to study this, you know, because it's a great example, right? You can look at 50 different states, what's the collective bargaining law, what's the level of striking in this period versus that, and they found out an interesting thing that workers were actually striking in more, more frequency in states where striking was outlawed than where it was legal. And the reason's simple. If the only way you can get a contract is by going out on strike, then you're going to have to go out on strike. So basically, they were able to, we were able to win our public employee unions uh, through that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what follows that, though. Um, so basically you have this explosion all through the 1960s. You have a high level of strike activity. I think the teacher strike activity reached its sort of peak uh, in the mid-1970s. Among public employees as a whole, I think there were 500-some strikes of public workers uh, in 1979. But then, you know, sort of following the, you know, general employer attack, uh, that happened in 1980 uh, with Ronald Reagan firing the air traffic controllers who were, we think about the impact on the private sectors, but they were, they were federal employees, right? Um, and, they, and the assault on unions in the 1980s, you see that public employee unionism uh, goes on the defensive for a period. And you see in the private sector, you see strikes, but most of them are sort of bitter defensive strikes, um, not the sort of offensive, you know, sort of forward-looking strikes that we saw in the period before. Um, but you also see public employee strikes kind of plummet. And you also see public employees kind of facing uh, a, a somewhat different challenge. Um, because during this period, sort of in the 1970s and beyond, um, uh, public employers started to try and paint public workers as lazy, overpaid, you know, attack their unions, right? Um, so public employees during that time, if they wanted to thrive, had to develop, and I think I see it as kind of a precursor to bargaining for the common good and a lot of the ideas today, um, what some have called a public employee social unionism. That they could not, they could not just, you know, be bargaining for their members. That they needed to be uh, bargaining broader. And the reason's pretty simple. If you read labor relations textbooks, um, what you'll find is that uh, the, the, the sort of professors find a fundamental difference between public employee bargaining and private sector bargaining, at least in terms of strikes. In the private sector, um, if, uh, you know, we strike American Airlines, um, <laughs> uh, the goal there will be to shut down the employer and stop the profits from coming in. Just like at uh, Ford and GM. They hit some of the big money-making plants and they got a deal, right? Um, but that's because you're, you're withholding your labor, stopping production, and the employer is losing their profits. Now think of a public employee strike. Um, what happens if, let's say, librarians go out on strike? Does the employer lose money? No, they actually save money, which is kind of an odd thing when you think about it that way. It's not like they give a rebate on taxes to the taxpayers. I worked on a clerical strike at a university way back, and the employer was actually, you know, saving money. 
Doesn't mean we can't win public employee strikes, it just means that we have to look at them as fundamentally different. Because a public employee strike is fundamentally political in nature. Because what you're trying to do with your strike is you're trying to force the policymakers to change their behavior. And that means that, that means that the type of strikes and how you strike has to be carefully thought out. And that has to be part of an overall political mobilization that's going to win your demands. And I think the more um, perceptive uh, public employee unions during that period uh, discovered that. And they were able to make gains even in this uh, difficult period. So let me just make a couple more uh, uh, observations. I'll bring you a little bit further up in uh, history uh, to the present uh, before I uh, hand, hand it over. Um, so like I said, um, public employee unionism went through, similar to the private sector, a period where, you know, there, there weren't a ton of public uh, worker strikes uh, going on in the uh, 90s and, uh, and 2000s. I mean, there were some, but just drastically reduced, right? Um, and public employee unions kind of changed their practices. And, you know, from like the sort of vibrant sort of member-led explosions of the 1970s and 60s and 70s, you know, bargaining became the, the province of experts, right? Um, you would go behind the, you know, go to the bargaining table. Um, often, you know, negotiations would be done uh, in secret, so the members really wouldn't know what's going on. Um, there was a reliance on, you know, lobbying politicians to get your deal. Um, and I think unions were able to survive during that period, um, but not really thrive. We have the development of, you know, this whole... Uh, wave of privatization of public services. Um, with teacher unionism, we have threats developing because I talk about this in my third book, uh, Class Struggle Unionism. But, you know, even when we have strong unions and we're developing, um, part of the problem is you have profits flowing upwards from the labor of working people and creating a class of billionaires, right? And that all their power starts in the workplace. But what happens when they have all this power and wealth? Because what is wealth other than power? Capital is a social relation, right? So they have this, all this power, and what they've done is they've turned it against working people. So we have the development of these initiatives to privatize public education. Um, not because it's more efficient or not because they really care about the outcome. It's because they don't believe that there should be any sphere in society that is not subject to the market. And they believe that everything should be, um, you know, under, under, under the market and that there really shouldn't be a public sector. So when you have that sort of development of this sort of class of people who don't think, not only do they not think that your union should exist, they don't think that public employment should exist. So you can't just go along with the sort of same forms of unionism when you're up against that, right? You, you have to develop a form of unionism that sort of puts them front and center and, and takes them on. And I think over the last uh, you know, decade or so in teacher unionism, I think we've seen a fundamental shift, right? I, I think what we saw starting with the Chicago teachers in their 2012 strike and then following that up, 
is the development of sort of a, a different form of unionism that looks a lot more like we had in the 1960s and 70s, where bargaining was a lot more open, where people knew what was going on and what they were fighting for, where the demands were broad class demands that were bargaining for the common good, that were fighting for the community, where they had broad public support where they had militancy and they were willing to take on the Democratic establishment in many of these cities, or Republicans, it doesn't matter. But they were willing to take on the power structure. And they were willing to fight for the members. And one of the things that you find, and I found this not from reading books, but from living it, is that the members, I always tell people when I'm you know, teaching bargaining classes and stuff, I always believe in the members. Because at the end of the day, what I find is that if you're out there and you're open in your bargaining and you're transparent about your demands and you're fighting for demands that the workers want, whether they're teachers or flight attendants or whatever group you're, you're, you're working with, the members are going to be there. And what we find is that you know, when, when, when we go forward like that, um, teacher unions uh, have uh, responded overwhelmingly, right? In city after city, teachers were fed up and stood up and fought back. And we also see that with auto workers and UPS drivers and everyone in the last few years. I always say that, you know, if you don't think the members are behind you, look ahead because that's probably where they are. And they may not be coming to your meetings because maybe your meetings are boring. Um, I, I'm sorry, but mine, a lot of ours are. Um, but they're always there when it matters. They make a choice about how they spend their time. And if you give them a reason for it to matter, they'll show up on the picket line. And then more than that, they'll take the contract on as their own. And it happens pretty quickly. And it's hard to describe unless you've been through it. And I'm, I know there's a panel tomorrow, people who've been through strikes. Um, but once you get to that point, and I think we're there at American, we're getting there at Alaska Airlines. I, I'm also helping out with them. Um, but when you get there, the members start taking their own initiative and moving forward. And like at American, I'll just tell a story where the employers are so stupid, right? I mean, that, like sometimes they're their worst enemies. Um, but the employer decides to tell the flight attendants that you can't show up to training with the red union t-shirt. And they put out a bulletin. But we did anyway. <laughs> so what all the flight attendants do is they get together and it's like a sea of red. They've driven everybody together. So, so you know, I, I just think it's important when we're, when we're talking about, you know, sort of the moment we're in and our bargaining that we really approach it, that we're not bargaining in isolation. That you're bargaining right now in a, in a, in a very favorable uh, condition. That you're in a condition where workers around the country are fighting back. You got the MAC workers, uh, UAW represented, voted down a 19% increase on day one because they're fed up and they see other workers fighting and they want to fight for more. So I think we're seeing that in industry after industry. And I think our choice as uh, you know, your, your sort of bargaining teams and local reps and state reps 
is to embrace that and to embrace that militancy. And if we do that as a labor movement, I think what we'll find is what history shows us and I think what the current uh, situation is telling us, that when we do that, we will win great gains and we will build a powerful movement that will be able to take on the billionaire class and do what we need to do as the working class in this country. Anyway, thanks all. <laughs>